why I think that song resonates, because we don't like it when other people blame us. But the problem is, because as humans, we don't want to take on blame, sometimes we could blame others when we should take responsibility. And let's be honest, as humans, we are great at making excuses. I have a few samples of real-life excuses. Here's some for school. Maybe it was hard to go back to school. Maybe you've used something like this even after spring break. Here's one. Please excuse Jennifer for missing school yesterday. We forgot to get the Sunday paper off the porch, and when we found it Monday, we thought it was Sunday. (laughs) Common problem, right? Of course. How about this one? Please excuse Ray, Friday from school. He has very loose vowels, which I think they can fix at school. I, I could be wrong. Uh, please excuse Jimmy for being late. It was his father's fault. <laughs> or how about some work excuses? Maybe this is where you are at your best. Uh, I can't make it to work today. My wife put all my underwear in the wash. He decided not to go commando, I suppose. Or how about this one? I won't be at work today. My doctor said I need more vitamin D, so I'm going to the beach. It's my doctor's fault. Or how about this one? I'm going to have to miss work today. I chugged a bottle of mouthwash thinking it was Powerade. Now I'm sick. How many swigs did it take to realize their mistake? Or maybe uh, my favorite, maybe you've uh, experienced this too, uh, raising cookies that look like chocolate chip cookies are the main reason I have trust issues. <laughs> One wrong bite. Now, we do say here at Gateway, no perfect people allowed, and we mean that. We want you to come with your struggles and your skepticism and your ups and your downs, but it's actually our desire to be an authentic place, a place where you can be honest, where we don't pretend that we have it all together. See, when we pretend to have it all together, we're actually not in a position to even change. See, no perfect people allowed isn't an excuse to never stay, never change, but instead an invitation to be authentic so God can actually change you to become more who he wants you to be, the best version of who we were created to be. And to do that, what we're doing in these three weeks leading up to Easter is we're looking at our core motivations. What drives the decisions you make? What is it that drives your actions or your behaviors? It's called How to Get Killed in Six Days, and some of you have noticed it reminded you of a film called Kill Bill. Now, that was our graphics team. I had nothing to do with that, and I refused to wear the yellow leather uh, onesie that comes with it. I'm not doing that today. But what I want you to know and to warn you that this series will be just as disruptive And maybe jarring as a Quentin Tarantino movie, when you look at what Jesus was willing to do for us and what he invites us to do as a result. See, Jesus, with six days left before the crucifixion, knew where he was headed. He intentionally gave his life for you and me. And when he calls us to follow him, it's actually an invitation to follow after him and to die to ourselves every day single day. And so we're tracing this story from the last six days of Jesus before the crucifixion. We start with the anointing at Bethany and look at Palm Sunday all the way to the betrayal and the crucifixion. And if you're not familiar with that story, we'll look at the story over the next few weeks. 
But see, the story ends with Jesus' willingness to give his life so that we can actually have life, new life, a life like no other. See, without the crucifixion, there is no resurrection. And even in our own lives, we're invited to die to self so that we can truly live. So I want to encourage you to take a real hard and honest look at what needs to be killed in your life, what's keeping you from the life that God has for you. And so to help us kind of understand this part of the story, we're going to watch a retelling of this sixth day before the crucifixion. It's a reading of John chapter 12, but let's watch together as they share the story. Six days before the Passover, Jesus went to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from death. They prepared a dinner for him there, which Martha helped serve. Lazarus was one of those who were sitting at the table with Jesus. Then Mary took a whole pint of a very expensive perfume made of pure nard, poured it on Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The sweet smell of the perfume filled the whole house. One of Jesus' disciples, Judas Iscariot, the one who was going to betray him, said, Why wasn't this perfume sold? For 300 silver coins. And the money given to the poor. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He carried the money bag and would help himself from it. Leave her alone. Let her keep what she has for the day of my burial. You will always have poor people with you. But you will not always have me. A large number of people heard that Jesus was in Bethany. So they went there, not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from death. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus too, because on his account many Jews were rejecting them and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the Passover festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Praise God! God bless him who comes in the name of the Lord! God bless the King of Israel. Jesus found a donkey and rode on it, just as the scripture says. Do not be afraid, city of Zion. Here comes your king, riding on a young donkey.
His disciples did not understand this at the time, but when Jesus had been raised to glory, they remembered that the scripture said this about him, and that they had done this for him. So to give you some context, you know, why would this woman pour out what's worth an entire year's income on Jesus' feet? And why would the crowd be proclaiming Hosanna, cheering for Jesus? See, for three and a half years, Jesus had been walking across Israel and his notoriety had grown. There were followers that had devoted all of their time. And Jesus would travel and he would feed the many thousands of people that would come. He would heal people and he would teach with great authority. And at this point, he had done the most miraculous of all the miracles. There was a, a follower, family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And they had reached out to Jesus because Lazarus was really, really sick. But Jesus did not go to heal him. And instead, Lazarus died. And he was placed in a tomb where he stayed. His body began to rot. And four days later, Jesus came and he brought him back to life. And so here's this dinner where Lazarus is in that room. There with the Jesus played by Desmond from Lost. <laughs> and other British characters. But in the midst of that room, Mary and Martha were there. And the people were aware that, that Jesus, he had given sight to the blind, he had healed the leprous, and now he'd given new life to a man who was dead, who was rotting. And it was in that context that the religious leaders began to turn with more intentionality towards killing Jesus. But listen what it says in John 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha, Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. People were so excited. I mean, this is miraculous. No wonder they were shouting out Hosanna. They believed he was the Messiah, giving life to those who were dead. And the religious leaders, you'd think, would be the most in tune with this Messiah to come. But instead, they had come to closure too soon on what God wanted to do and who God was in their life. You see, they had mixed motivations. They had positions of power and prestige. They had been closely aligned with the Roman government. They said it was to protect Israel, to protect the temple. But now Jesus' message did not require people go to the religious leaders. They instead could go to Jesus to connect with God. And in the midst of feeling threatened, that's when they became intentional about ending his life. Listen in John 11. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, the religious leaders said, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. See, they're mixed motives. They wanted self-preservation. What's fascinating about the religious leaders is they didn't deny that this miracle had happened. There was far too much proof. 
In fact, even in the, the Talmud, which is not a part of the scriptures, not a part of the Bible, it's writings by religious leaders, it actually refers to Jesus in the name, uh, in his native language, Yeshu. It says this, on the eve of Passover, they hanged Yeshu the Nazarene, that's Jesus, because he practiced sorcery and led Israel astray. They didn't deny that he was doing the miraculous, but they questioned how he was able to do that, accusing him of having dark powers. See, but it's not just the religious leaders that, that do that. All of us struggle to be honest about what's really happening under the surface. All of us struggle to identify our motives, what moves us forward. See, they were threatened. They realized their power was going to come to an end. And they'd come to closure on who God was and what God was up to. And so they began to use fear and intimidation to convince that same crowd that was chanting Hosanna to six days later, scream out, crucify him. They completely changed what was happening in the excitement around Jesus. But all of us do this. Are we willing to be honest with our motives? See, you and I can only have one God, one ultimate first in our life. And who gets that first place? What gets that first place? So they're having this dinner, and it's at Simon the leper's house. Now, Simon had leprosy and had been healed by Jesus, and it's unfortunate that he was known as Simon the leper. I wonder if every time he was introduced, hey, this is Simon the leper. He's like, look, I have no leprosy. I have been healed. It's no fun to be defined by your worst moment in life. But Simon the leper was hosting this out of gratitude. I mean, he had been healed by Jesus. And there in the room was Lazarus, who had been healed by Jesus. And so even in the midst of such miraculous moments, it was still shocking that Mary would enter the picture with this perfume. Listen to what it says again in John 12. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I don't know if you're much of a perfume wearer or cologne. Maybe you're into cologne. I remember in eighth grade, I, I came across Jacquard Noir. It was my cologne of choice in eighth grade. Actually, on one of my very first dates, I, I was so afraid that the effects of the Jacquard Noir would, would fade that I put a little vial of the sample in my pocket I was seeing uh, the movie Spies Like Us with Kelly Birch, and I was so excited. I sat down, and when I sat down, it cracked and spilled. looked like I peed my pants, and I smelt like I just exited a Jacquard Noir factory. And it got worse. I tried to put my arm around her at a certain moment when Dan Aykroyd was doing something on screen, and I accidentally put my arm between the seats, and it got caught. It was a calamity of errors. First and last date with Kelly Birch. But Jacquard Noir, like that, that to me, it was this expensive perfume, and, and there was something, you know, important about that in eighth grade. But see, perfume in those days meant far more than it means to us. You see, they didn't have banks, so if you wanted to save up, you'd actually go out and purchase something expensive like this perfume. And in, in fact, the scriptures tell us that this was a year's worth of wages for Mary, I want you to think about that for a moment. Think about how much you make in one year. Don't say it out loud, just think about it. 
And I want you to imagine, what if you'd saved up that much? Start imagining, what could you do with that money? Where could you go? What, what, what could you do with that kind of money saved up? Now, the thought of maybe taking a year's worth of wages and giving it to God's work might stretch us, but it might be something you'd be open to, right? Because you'd know that it would go off and, and, and do so much good, right? Giving to, to what we do together, we're able to help people in so many different amazing ways. But, but Mary didn't even do that. She took a year's worth of wages, purchased this perfume, and then poured it on the feet of Jesus. When you saw her walk into the room with that expensive perfume, what would have gone through your mind? And then when she started to pour it on his feet, no less, maybe it shouldn't surprise us that somebody spoke up. What are you, wait, 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 what are you doing? <laughs> Before you pour that all out. See, in Judas in that moment, couldn't help himself and just said out loud, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Why would she waste all of that income on Jesus? Jesus, why didn't you stop her? Why didn't you give that money to the poor? Now, concern for the poor and concern for people in need is, is actually something that, that Jesus is concerned about. Jesus talks about our need to be kind and generous to those in need throughout the entire scriptures. But see, what was happening here was, was Judas had mixed motives. See, his true motives were very different than what he was saying. And I don't even think Judas was fully aware of it. I think Judas was deceived. See, what happens if we're not fully aware of what motivates us, we can be easily deceived. See, if we're honest Instead of killing our wrong motives, sometimes we will actually kill God in our lives. We would never say that's what we're doing. In fact, Judas, in that moment, I'm certain, thought that he was saying the right thing. Maybe this was a test that, that only he was passing, reminding everyone in the room that, that Jesus cares for the poor. There's no reason to go and do that. But see, the scriptures tell us it became evident just a few days later that Judas in John chapter 12 did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. See, greed was his true God, his true idol. That's what motivated him. It's what drove him. It's how he made his decisions. It's where he put his security, his sense of worth, his hope. And before we make Judas out to be so evil and horrible that we keep him at a safe distance from our own motives, remember that Judas was one of Jesus' disciples. He saw the miracles. He was there when Lazarus rose from the dead. He saw Jesus feed the thousands. He was even a part of Jesus' life group. I would imagine Jesus was a good life group leader. <laughs> and Judas would travel with Jesus and was even sent out as part of Jesus' ministry. And then the scriptures tell us it was actually Jesus who asked Judas to be the treasurer. And why would Jesus do that? Why would he put someone who struggles with greed and money being his God in charge of the money? See, I think God does that with all of us. 
He actually entrusts way more to us than what we ever could deserve. And he entrusts to us as an opportunity for us to entrust back to him what he's given to us. So you and I have the opportunity to decide if the good gifts from God will become our gods or out of gratitude for what God has given us be used to to love God and to love other people. See, Judas was not forced to betray Jesus. It happened slowly with many little opportunities to either kill his idol of greed, to stop stealing and to live for God, or to kill this God who in his mind was not fulfilling what Judas wanted him to do. See, Jesus trusted Judas with the money so he could be saved from what ultimately actually killed Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus. And when Jesus did not fight back but willingly went to the cross, Judas took the money he got for betraying Jesus and threw it back at the religious leaders and killed himself. So what are we willing to kill that's in our heart that's keeping us from the life that God has for us? Are we willing to kill the things that try to usurp God's rightful place in our lives? Or do we kill God when his commands threaten what we really value and even live for? What do we kill and what do we live for? See, searching out our true motives is really important. And if we're truly going to see God's resurrection life alive in us, it requires dying to self. It's a new life that's only experienced with God at the center. We must kill all the things that are trying to be in first place in our lives. I've shared with you before that as a teenager, I was uh, pretty ungrateful. I felt like my parents were too cheap. And my, I grew up in the suburbs of Dallas-Fort Worth, and everybody was wearing IZODs and polos and members only, and I had all the cheap knockoff versions. I had a members-only jacket, but it didn't even have members-only. It was a a fake, and I would walk around embarrassed, but still trying to fit in. And in my teen years, I just was just ungrateful. And it wasn't until I went off to college that I began to realize how grateful I should be, not just to my parents, but, but grateful to God for all that I have. In fact, there's a verse that used to haunt me. It's Luke 12. It says this, From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much will be asked. See, I began to realize that that God has blessed me. And because I have been given so much, I have the opportunity to do more for others. See, and the same is true for every one of us. Every one of us has been given so much more than what we could ever deserve. With privilege comes the opportunity to do more for others. It's out of gratitude that we should serve others and we should give. I wonder if we begin to realize and even see things through this perspective of gratitude rather than getting twisted up by greed. See, greed is an idol. The scriptures tell us to kill the idols in our life that keep us from experiencing the life God has for us. To kill the idols or else we end up killing God from leading us in our lives. Listen to Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. 
See, when you hear that word idol, you, you might be tempted to think of, you know, cultures that have a, a totem in their house, something else they worship. You may be thinking, no, I, I worship Jesus. I'm a Christian, right? I'm an American, right? And, and in essence, if we're honest, there's actually things that Americans that we worship. If an alien were to come and, and to observe our culture, what do you think that alien would think we worship? Uh, you had several examples, iPhone, Netflix. I was thinking bigger things, and although those are true, right? Money, power, sex. I think that our culture worships these things, and we get distracted or confused and unintentionally find ourselves going down those same paths. In fact, what if you were to have someone observe your life, what would they say you worship? If they were to see how you spend your money, how you spend your time, how you spend your moments in thought, what are you thinking about? What are you dreaming about? See, Judas slipped into the idol of greed, greedy for more. Greedy for power, greedy for more. He, he saw that money being poured out on Jesus' feet and thought to himself, wait a minute, if you would have sold that, 300 pieces of silver could have gone into the coffers of the good work we do for Jesus. But see, they discovered later that he was taking some of that money off of the top. See, the scriptures tell us no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. When Jesus did not do what Judas thought the Messiah should do, he showed that his true God was money. He betrayed Jesus for 30 silver coins. Right after Mary spent the equivalent of 300 silver coins to anoint the feet of Jesus. See, there's... Moments in our life where we might make the same excuse that Judas makes. You know, so much more good could be done with that money. You, you shouldn't waste it like that. But we have to ask ourselves, are we truly going to spend that money to do the good? Or are we wanting to just keep it for ourselves? See, that's what I love about being a part of a, a community like Gateway, where together we've been able to build a hospital in India, rebuild villages in Haiti, to do so much good here in Austin and across the world. See, when we give together, we're able to do so much more to bring help and hope to other people. So giving to what God wants us to do, it makes sense, but, but taking this perfume and pouring it out, just wasting it. See, but I want you to know that anything you give to God it's never wasted. I mean, I, I can't imagine what Mary must have been thinking in that moment. Overwhelmed with the fact that her brother was alive. He'd been dead and now he's alive. And there's a party and it's, it's right there at their home in Bethany. Or at Simon's home. And she goes and she takes this, this perfume. She just feels this prompting that the least she could do is pour it out on his feet. And wash his feet with her hair. It's just so counter, so unusual to our customs. But 
in essence, what she was doing, Jesus begins to explain, you're actually preparing my body for burial. See, when someone would die in those days, they would cover their body in perfumes before wrapping them and laying them in a tomb. She felt prompted to to anoint his feet with oil, not realizing the significance of what she was doing. Six days from that moment, Jesus, the one who gave life to her brother, would give his life for all of mankind. She didn't understand fully what she was doing, perhaps, in that moment. She just knew that she couldn't do anything less than that. Pouring out a year's worth of wages is nothing compared to pouring out his life for you and for me. See, Jesus' sacrifice for you and for me means that anything he asks of us to sacrifice isn't really a sacrifice at all. It's just a response for his love and his forgiveness and for his generosity. See, sometimes God asks us to take steps that we don't fully understand. But when we trust him, when we sacrifice things that we think are so important, on the other side is the life we've always dreamed of, the life that he offers all of us. See, Mary understood this is the Messiah, the creator of the universe, walking with flesh, with blood beating through his heart. This is the least she could do. She had heard Jesus say on that day that he gave, his, he gave uh, Lazarus his life back. He said this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will li- live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. See, Jesus is the source of life, eternal life. It's not a sacrifice to give him all I have. It's the safest place to keep all I have. See, when we try to keep from God things, we actually ultimately lose those things. It's out of her overflow of abundance and gratitude that she just gave, investing in something more eternal. See, one of the main differences between Mary and Judas was gratitude. I mean, they were both there when they saw Lazarus walk out of the tomb. But to Judas, it was still not enough. This Messiah, he's supposed to be doing more. But to Mary, she was motivated by gratitude. I I wonder if you're finding yourself overwhelmed, thankful for all that you have, or distracted and even angry about all that you don't yet have. See, that's the essence of gratitude, being thankful for what you have and not mad about what you don't have. The scriptures tell us, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Ever wanted to know what God's will is for your life? It's to become someone who is aware of all that God has done already in your life. Even psychologists have done studies, and they've proven what the Bible said years ago. A Harvard Medical School publication says this, in positive psychology research, Gratitude is strongly and consistently associated with greater happiness. Gratitude helps people feel more positive emotions, relish good experiences, improve their health, deal with adversity, and build strong relationships. So if you're not willing to try gratitude because the scriptures say it, you should do it because Harvard says (laughs) to be grateful. 
And seriously, if, if that's a struggle in your life, being grateful, I, I want to encourage you. There's a couple ways to, to exercise that muscle. Keep a gratitude journal. Just start to write down the ways you've been blessed, you've been gifted. You might be overwhelmed when you start to realize just waking up in the morning is a gift from God. The family you couldn't stand for so long was a gift from God. So much God has given to us. Or maybe writing thank you notes. If you want to go to the next level, write a thank you note and read it to the person that you're thankful for. Or learning to practice prayer and meditation every day, throughout the day. See, prayer is talking to God and meditating on the scriptures is listening to God. See, Mary gave from gratitude, but Judas made excuses out of greed. Whatever you try to keep from God, you ultimately lose because it doesn't give you life, it destroys. Jesus is gonna die in six days and his invitation to us is to die daily as we follow after him. The scriptures tell us in John 12, Jesus' response to Judas was, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. She was anointing him as he was about to die for all of us. He held nothing back for you and for me. See, the idols in our life actually keep us from experiencing life. What are the idols you're holding on to? They might even be good gifts from God that you've inadvertently turned into idols. Could be your career. Could be your family or the pursuit of a family. Or it could be a more obvious struggle that you know is destructive. Whatever that idol is, my encouragement to you is to, with God's help, kill whatever is keeping life from you. Jesus goes on to say, Mary has done a beautiful thing. This is the last verse. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. She had no idea a prompting, the least she could do, give this moment to Jesus to serve him in this way. And now, 2,000 years later, even today in South Austin, we're talking about this moment. What is it that God's calling you to do, to let go of, to entrust to him?